Scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 1 and reading through the end of the chapter. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke to their hearts. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the, this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, 
God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in an ark in Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that you sanctify us by it. And may you use your word to that end this day. May you meet us in in our weariness, whether it's weariness of body, mind, or soul. And so direct us to Christ, our Savior and King, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And may we see Christ clearly in the text this day and be so moved to follow him more fully and faithfully. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Truth be told, I didn't originally intend for us to spend as much time in Genesis as we have over the past number of months. What was initially envisioned as a handful of sermons to get us a running start into Exodus by considering some highlights of Jacob and Joseph fairly quickly turned into a more intensive study of their lives, Joseph in particular. But when it comes to Genesis, that's fairly easy to do because it's such a marvelous book. This book of beginnings has it all. The story of creation, the story of redemption, the story of Christ's uh, kingdom, the, the, the story of the world. The patterns are set. The seeds are planted. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are revealed to us again and again in creative and marvelous ways throughout the narrative, as is our calling as the church and as believers. I suppose, I suppose there's a sense in which we never leave Genesis, never get beyond it, because it's, it's all here. And while there is a measure of sadness and in leaving this remarkable book in God's Word, rest assured that we'll return to it time and time again. Last week, we considered the latter part of chapter 49, the blessings upon Joseph and Benjamin, followed by Jacob's final command to his sons, explicitly telling them, to bury him in Canaan, followed then by his death. In some respects, we left things in the middle of the story, as chapter 50 is the continuation and conclusion of that scene, along with parting information regarding Joseph and instructions and circumstances regarding his death. You may have even immediately noticed the parallels between the closing accounts of Jacob and and Joseph, and, and certainly that's not accidental. And as we consider what's here Once again, the the text of Genesis, the themes that the Holy Spirit has woven in the text have immediate application to our life of faith as the church and as Christians. While we could approach this final chapter from a couple of different ways, we'll take it in three large sections. In verses 1 through 14, we are presented with the ascension of Joseph's father. Now, why the ascension and not the burial of Jacob? Well, five times in these verses, reference is made to of going up or to go up or went up, all of which are a form of the verb meaning to ascend. This was hinted at last week, but not only did they physically go up from Canaan to Egypt, but theologically they they were going up to the promised land. Also, the name Jacob is never used. Once at the end of verse 2, the statement is made, so the Egyptians embalmed Israel, which has a deeper meaning we'll note later on, but some eight times reference is made to Joseph's father, whether his father, my father, or your father. That's the dominant point of reference to Jacob throughout, as Joseph's father. 
What this subtly does is set up Joseph as the firstborn, as the leader among his brothers, which he was at this point. Also evidenced in the fact that he's the one now giving commands. Jacob commanded his sons regarding his burial, and now Joseph's the one giving commands to his servants in particular. What's going on here theologically is that Jacob is going to prepare a place for his sons who will come up to Canaan in another 240 years. And here, here I want to kind of pull off to the side of the road for a moment as if we were traveling, and there's a sign for a scenic view, and, and remind us or set before us, um, maybe for the first time even, some of the overarching Trinitarian themes that emerge in Genesis. See, Abraham is the father. Remember, he was big daddy. That's what his name means. And Jacob is the son. He was perfect. He was the perfect son, the righteous man, the complete man, the one who loved the covenant. But what happens to Jacob? Well, he undergoes death and resurrection, a death and resurrection experience with his father, Isaac. And then he undergoes a death and resurrection experience with Laban. And then at Peniel, the culmination of his 20 years of dealing with Laban. He goes through a death and resurrection in relation to Joseph. And then in his death, in his death, in Jacob's death, he leaves things to his sons, to the church, to carry on. Well, that's basically what Jesus did, right? And so Joseph is associated with the Holy Spirit. Jacob leaves Joseph with his brothers, sends Joseph to his brothers, and now Joseph leads and goes ahead of his brothers, the church, and guides them. Also remember Joseph's ministry to the Gentiles, to Egypt, another way in which he's associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Pharaoh even declared that Joseph had the Spirit of God. So, so Jacob's ascension is a prelude to the ascension that Israel would later experience upon their deliverance out of Egypt, and it pictures Christ's ascension and ours as we follow him. So then getting back on the road, in verses 2 and 3, uh, details about the embalming and mourning are given. But notice the reference is made. Joseph commanded the physicians to embalm his father. He, so he's, he's embalmed as an individual. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Yes, Israel means Jacob. But there's also a sense in which Israel as a nation is embalmed in Egypt. The process of embalming would have meant certain spices would have been used. Back in chapter 37... Joseph went down into Egypt accompanied by various spices, some of which were used as burial or embalming spices. Joseph went down into Egypt. He went down into death, didn't he? He was embalmed, but then eventually is resurrected. Here the embalming process takes 40 days, and the 70 days of mourning may include uh, the 40 days. So there were 30 days beyond the embalming process for mourning. Israel mourned for Aaron and Moses for 30 days when they died. Or it could be that they're to be added all together for 110. But the explicit mention of 40 and 70 are interesting. Uh, there may be allusions back to the flood and the sets of 40 days mentioned there at the beginning and end of the flood. Noah ends up uh, ascending to Mount Ararat and into a new world. Also, the use of 40 matches the 40 years of uh, Israel's wilderness wandering after coming out of Egypt. What might that imply? That it took them 40 years to kind of get over the effects of having been embalmed in Egypt. You know, what was one of the, the refrains of that generation? 
how did they couch their grumbling and complaining? Things were better in Egypt. We ate better food in Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. See, their, their, Egyptian, their Egyptian embalming left them in a spiritual stupor of sorts. Israel may have been out of Egypt, but not all of Egypt was out of Israel after a fashion. The fact that the Egyptians mourned for 70 days may be a direct allusion also back to the 70 nations listed in Genesis 10. And the Gentile nations listed there, with the implication being that Egypt has been saved, a, a point we've argued in past weeks. So um, Egypt is portrayed here as a Christian nation, we might say. And I know it's been a while since we considered Genesis 10 or 11, but we need to remember that the whole point for Israel's existence was to bring salvation to those nations that fell into sin at the Tower of Babel. And immediately after that, what happens? Well, God calls Abraham to minister to those nations. We see that in glimpses with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but profoundly with Joseph. Well, in verses 4 to 6, we read about Joseph seeking Pharaoh's permission to bury his father in Canaan. If he was still in mourning, then he wouldn't have appeared before the king of Egypt. And so he spoke to the house of Pharaoh, sending his request through them. You know, you don't appear before a king in sackcloth. And Joseph is careful in his message to Pharaoh, making Jacob's instructions clear, while avoiding an unintended, an unintended offense that could have been caused as to why Jacob was not to be buried in Egypt. And Pharaoh doesn't hesitate, but tells Joseph to go up and bury his father. And it's worth noting that this Pharaoh is portrayed very positively in the Joseph narrative. Not a negative thing is said about him. And you can hardly attribute any fault to him at all. And this of a Gentile king. See, Pharaoh is another father to Joseph, and he's kind. He trusts Joseph to return, as Joseph stated he would. Then in verses 7 and 9, the participants in the funeral procession are, are, are recorded. And it's an interesting and impressive list. Joseph is listed first, then Pharaoh's servants, the elders of Pharaoh's house, and the elders of the land of Egypt. So there's, there's three sets of Gentiles. Then the house of Joseph is mentioned, his brothers, and his father's house. So then you have three sets of Israelites. Now, very clearly, the little ones and animals uh, remained in Goshen, as verse 8 records, which is interesting in light of the Pharaoh in Exodus, who wants Israel to leave their children behind to go and worship God. But it also indicates, indicates the clear intention of Joseph and his brothers to return. Verse 9 mentions chariots and horsemen, a very great company, which certainly has a military nuance about it. Here again, another interesting connection, even a contrast with the horses and chariots that pursue the nation of Israel at the Exodus. So here's Jacob's, Israel's Exodus accompanied by Egypt, and later Israel's Exodus will be opposed by Egypt. It makes for an interesting narrative and excellent writing, doesn't it? So Joseph and this great company of people, which may have numbered as many as 10,000, make their way up to Canaan, but not to conquer it. Again, they know the time isn't right for that. They still need some years in the garden land of Goshen before they are ready to go up to take the promised land. But here there's anticipation of what's to come at the conquest. Now, the exact location of a Todd, which can really be translated bramble threshing floor, is unknown. And which side of the Jordan is being referenced is also a bit debated. Beyond the Jordan often means on the east side, out of the promised land, which may be the case here. Perhaps they arrived uh, east of the Jordan, even across from Jericho, 
taking the route that Joshua and company would later travel? And if so, foreshadowing and the foreshadowing and parallels are even closer. Further, the loud lamentation for seven days might compare to the waiting to cross the Jordan recorded in Joshua 1 through 5. And verse 13 might imply that only Jacob's sons went to Machpelah to bury him. But what's important to note is that the Canaanites take notice. They saw the morning on the bramble threshing floor. The greatness of the morning. And the Egyptians were mourning. And so they named the place accordingly. Abel Mitzrayim. Abel meaning meadow or morning. Mitzrayim of Egypt. And notice who's doing the naming here. The Canaanites. That means they're still in control of the land. The fact that the morning took place at a threshing floor is interesting, as is the name. A threshing floor appears significantly in the story of Ruth and Boaz. The temple is built on a threshing floor. The temple is associated with both death and marriage, sacrifice and new life. And furthermore, a threshing floor is a place of separation. The fact that the name is Bramble Threshing Floor may have allusions back to Genesis 3. A bramble is a thorn and is connected to the curse for Adam's sin. Consider, death has come to Israel. This was promised by God in the fall of Adam just after he promised that the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So death is still the enemy. Death is still mourned, and even a man as great as Jacob must succumb to it. He is not the son who conquers death. Then in verses 12 to 14, the writer is impressing upon us the fulfillment of the burial oath that Jacob's sons took, even as the text is clear to give all the specific geographical and historical information once again, and even taking us back to Genesis 23. They did what Jacob commanded, and their obedience is an act and sign of faith that they'll eventually come back there too. Obedience is the proof of faith. And that's what Jesus, that's what Joseph and his brothers are exhibiting here. Well, that brings us to verses 15 to 21. And here we read of the reconciliation of Joseph's brothers. The brothers saw that Jacob was dead. Now, this doesn't mean they just figured out uh, that, that their father had died, but that they're rendering judgments, that they're discerning something about the circumstances. There's an intentional echo of Genesis 3. So we can make a case that Genesis is, is ending where it began in, in many respects. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. The brothers now see that their father is dead. And they're worried about what might happen to them. They're worried that Joseph may now act as, as Esau vowed in chapter 27 or verse 41. And take vengeance now that the mourning for their father is over paying them back for the evil they did to him. And of course, this is referring to the evil done to Joseph in chapter 37. But once again, it echoes the language of Genesis 3 and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the kingly tree. See, the brothers attacked Joseph who held the kingly position of authority for Jacob and who wore the kingly robe. What was the punishment for Adam and Eve's uh, taking from the kingly tree? What did the brothers deserve? Death. Their crimes were punishable by death. As we draw closer to Holy Week and to Good Friday in particular, consider. The punishment for seizing God's fruit in the garden was death. 
If they took fruit off the tree, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, they had to put fruit back on the tree. What fruit could they put on? Jesus hung on a tree to pay for what Adam stole from the tree, taking the death that Adam deserved for doing it. Well, the brothers sent a message ahead of them to Joseph saying that Jacob had given a command before he died and, and that he was to forgive the transgressions and sins of his brothers for the evil done to him. It's widely debated as to whether or not this was a lie. We're not told that Jacob ever said this to his other sons, and we can rightly wonder why he wouldn't just directly tell Joseph. Even if these words uh, weren't spoken, an argument can be made that Jacob's blessings upon his sons implies this. Furthermore, the idea that they were commanded to go and seek... Uh, Furthermore, the idea is that they were commanded uh, to go and seek forgiveness from Joseph. And notice how they couch their request, your father. They don't say our father. They're showing a measure of, of humility here. And this also indicates that Joseph is the most like his father, Jacob. They refer to themselves as the servants of the God of your father, which is not only giving priority of place to Joseph, but is also a theological statement that they are of the same faith and serve the same God. In verse 15, they, they pile up the terms to refer to their sins. And so what we have here is the fullest confession of sin the brothers have ever made. At last, they're seeking full reconciliation with Joseph. And at the end of verse 17, Joseph weeps when the message comes to him. The third time mention is made of Joseph weeping in relation to his brothers. These are tears of joys, joy over the reconciliation that has been sought and given. And notice an underlying theological implication that's here in the text. Jacob's death is linked to their life. Jacob is a substitute for them. Jacob's death serves as the transition between the conflict and full reconciliation. We noted a similar pattern in, uh, in relation to the death of Isaac and the release of Joseph from prison. Jacob died and ascended up into the promised land and now intercedes on behalf of his sons. Well, consider, Jesus did the same thing. He died, ascended, and now intercedes for forgiveness for us. And Jacob has left behind this intercession for forgiveness. These things are no accident. We are supposed to understand that this is how God is working out salvation. Jacob, the, the perfect man, the complete man, is the one who did this. He is the one who wrestled with God and prevailed. He persuades God in his prayer, wrestling, and now his death provides reconciliation. Jesus said the same kind of thing in Luke 22. Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your strength may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When Jesus ascended after he died and was resurrected, there was forgiveness for Peter. And then Peter was supposed to strengthen his brothers. Jacob is now the intercessor, and he will bring this about even beyond the grave. Verses 19 and 20 are arguably the, the climax of the gospel in Genesis. And really, doesn't Joseph sound like Jesus in these verses and even into verse 21? Twice he tells them, do not fear. But notice what other significant thing he says. In verse 19, am I in the place of God? Why is that significant? Because Joseph is the new Adam. And where Adam and Eve sought to be in the place of God, 
Joseph clearly says he is not. Only God is, the, is fully the judge of life and death, and Joseph rejects trying to play God. He rejects Adam's sin. And Joseph's famous words, words that are profoundly comforting for believers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Even these words echo the theme of good and evil from the opening chapters of Genesis. As one theologian observes, Adam and Eve violated the conditions of good and evil, but God worked good out of evil and life out of death. God planned good to do in, God planned good to do this day, the day of the Lord. And the first day of the Lord was in Genesis 3 when God came in the day to Adam and Eve. This day was not a day of death, but a day of life to keep people alive. God has worked out a way to bring life out of a curse of death. The language is deliberate to push us back to the fact that when Adam tried to put himself in the place of God and he committed evil by taking prematurely of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the result was the curse of death that came on that day. It is all changed here. God has worked out a plan to bring life out of death and good out of evil. And certainly, certainly you can see this ultimately connects to Jesus. But understand that the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are being fulfilled in part here. No, not fully. But look at what's happening here. The, the entire world, quote-unquote, has been converted. The entire world has been fed bread and wine by a messianic figure. We can hardly fail to see the New Testament typology. So we aren't surprised to see that someone has died so that someone might live. God worked life out of death. That has been a theme throughout this entire story. And now God has completely brought life out of death, overcome evil with good. And man is no longer trying to play God. The many people that Joseph references not only includes the tribes of Israel, but also the Egyptians and any of the surrounding nations that came to Joseph in Egypt for bread during the famine. What kind of figure is Joseph in verse 21? Well, he's a Savior, Messiah, still promising to provide for them and for their little ones for the generations to come. And so Joseph comforted his brothers. He removed their fear with perfect love and spoke kindly to them, literally to their hearts. So there's a deepening of the reconciliation. Their hearts failed them back in chapter 42 and verse 29, 28, even as they recognized that God was against them. Now their hearts are healed. And though God has spoken comfort to us, and never more significantly than at our baptism, which declares the forgiveness of our sins, doesn't He come along and bring us words of comfort and reconciliation again and again? He does so from His Word, when you're reading or hearing a text of Scripture. He does so every week in the liturgy after the confession of sin and forgiveness is declared. And in so doing, isn't he also saying, do not fear, I am with you, I am with your children, and I will provide for you. And though the reconciliation is between Joseph and his brothers, the language is piled up to show us the reconciliation between God and us. This is how it happens. This is how God has worked out salvation in history. Jesus comes, and though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be seized. He didn't do what Adam did and try to make himself God. He came in the image of God like a man. He did not try to seize equality with God. Rather, he was willing to be a servant just like Joseph. He was willing to undergo death like Joseph. 
The effect of that was that good came out of evil. Death was transformed into life. God was restored as God, and God's people were restored to Him and to one another. All of that has happened. Well, that brings us lastly and briefly to verses 22 and 26. And the ascension of Joseph prophesied and promised. Now, there are a number of interesting things going on with Joseph, age of 110. And there are numerical connections to Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that, so that Joseph is being portrayed as a new Adam and also as the successor and climax of the patriarchs. Joseph remained in Egypt and saw multiple generations of grandchildren, which is a sign of blessing. Manasseh's son, Machir, referenced in verse 23, his name means one who is sold, which was certainly true of Joseph. So perhaps Machir was named for his grandfather. His sons were adopted by Joseph. How many isn't clear, but this parallels Jacob's adoption of, of Ephraim and Manasseh, as we studied in chapter 48. Also, interestingly enough, later in Israel's history, Machir acts and is considered as a semi-independent tribe, even settling in a different location than the rest of Manasseh. And that being, a case, uh, that being the case, there's even a sense in which there are 14 tribes of Israel. In verse 24, we're reminded again of Jacob's closing moments, where Joseph declares to his brothers, personal aspect, that his death is imminent, and he tells them that God will visit them and bring them up out of the land of Egypt. He will deliver them, taking them into the land God swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God swore, and now the sons of Israel, corporate aspect, are to swear to carry up his bones from Egypt. The sons of Israel should be like God in the right sense. They should imitate him. Same is true for us. The things God does are the things we are supposed to do. Not trying to replace him, but simply doing his work on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Joseph's embalming reminds us of Jacob's embalming, but there's a twist of sorts. Remember, it took... 40 years to unwrap Israel to get the Egyptian out of them. They kept wanting to go back to Egypt, but finally they got disembalmed. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, was baptized, then spent 40 days with Satan, then a period of suffering on earth, rejected by men, crucified, and then 40 days until his ascension. The number 40 is a period of transition, but not only that, is a transition down into a state of suffering and death, and a transition back into an estate of ascension. People were embalmed in Egypt in a state somewhat close to death so that they could be resurrected later on. Now Joseph was going to be embalmed and he said that they, should take, they shouldn't take him back to the promised land until they left Egypt. He didn't want to ascend until they ascended. Jacob ascended before they did, just as Jesus did. Joseph wanted to wait until they ascended and they would all ascend together. Verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in an ark in Egypt. Joseph being embalmed was a sign that they would be embalmed in Egypt and his being brought up was a sign that they would be brought up and resurrected. Now the word coffin is the word ark that is used for the ark of the covenant. They came out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and God told them to make the ark of the covenant. They traveled in the wilderness for 40 years and they carried the ark of the covenant. Somewhere in the procession were the sons of Ephraim or Manasseh carrying the Ark of Joseph. Somebody during that period of time must have figured out there was a link between the two. The, the throne of God, the Ark, is based on the death of Jesus Christ. 
The sacrifice of the animals maintained the ark. Joseph's death and preservation was there as a reminder that everything they experienced was because somebody else died. All of that was type and prophecy and gospel for them to think about as they lived before it was fulfilled. We see it all because we have the New Testament explaining it. Jesus died and built on his death is the throne of God. He rules us because he died for us. And again, Genesis is a book of beginnings. That's what the name means. And here we are at its end. And though it ends with a death, and death is still an enemy to be defeated, even as Joseph's tears and mourning over his father's death indicate, the book ends on a note of promise and triumph. Some suffer for others, and that was the privilege of Israel to suffer for the life of the world. The gospel salvation plan where Jesus suffers for us and we die and suffer for others to bring about salvation for the whole world progressively in history is, is all here in a capsule. Genesis doesn't end on a note of despair, but on the very real glories of the kingdom of God. Forgiveness, restoration, victory, all, although this is not the end of the story. Of course, as is made plain by the entire context. Even in death, there is the promise of deliverance, the promise of salvation. And the greater Joseph speaks words of comfort. He says to you and to me, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so by faith, go and serve the world to which you are sent, knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not sickness, not distress or persecution, not famine or danger, not financial struggles or difficult relationships or government institutions. Nothing in this life and not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord, a love that is stronger than death. No, even in these things you are more than conquerors through him who loved you because what men may mean for evil, God is working out for your good to make you more like his son, Jesus. And sometimes that's hard to see, whether in what we're observing taking place in the world, particularly where there's persecution, violence, oppression, or even in the circumstances or experiences of our own lives. You know, what heartache have you suffered? What violence have you had to endure? What has been taken from you that you can never get back? Perhaps it's been a result of your own sin. Perhaps it was on account of the sin of another against you. And all, all you can see is loss and suffering. All you can see is death. Your life, your heart has been, has been broken and nothing will ever be the same again. Well, that was certainly the case for jo Joseph all the way back in chapter 37, wasn't it? But what is the remarkable testimony of his faith here in chapter 50? That despite the evil, which was great, God used it for good. That out of death came life. And this must point us forward course, to the greater Joseph, to Christ's own suffering and death and the good achieved by it and that our faith can cast itself all the more fully upon our God who is Joseph's God because he too has suffered death. He is well acquainted with our griefs and sorrows and is sympathetic toward us. He knows. He knows even better than we do 
And so what is faith to do? Cast itself anew upon this Lord, the one who has conquered death. The one who says to you, do not fear. I will heal your heart. I will mend your broken life, for I am making all things new. My grace, which never fails, which is always full, is sufficient for you. And you are invited. Your faith is invited to believe this, to behold this, to partake of this reality each and every week at your Lord's table, in the bread and the wine, the very symbols of Jesus' death, which for you are life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for the book of Genesis. We thank you for the life of Joseph and Jacob and for the marvelous ways in which they point us to Christ. And may your spirit indeed impress upon us all the more the example of their lives, the testimony of their faith, and your working through them for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. And may we find greater encouragement and strength as we consider these stories, as we meditate and dwell upon them. And may you so mature us in the faith that we would continue to bear fruit in our lives for the sake of your kingdom upon the earth and for the honor of your name. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.